If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to The Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. Calling all History Extra podcast listeners. We want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast, so please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes, and as a thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two £100 e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11.59pm on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Last week, a big new study of Viking-era DNA was published, which grabbed quite a lot of attention. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, put in a call to Dr Kat Jarman at the University of Bristol to get her view on the research. Before we start today's episode, we've got a quick favour to ask. We're working hard to give you the most interesting range of podcasts we can during these difficult times. If you like what we're doing, then please do give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's Kat Jarman speaking to Dave Musgrove. 
So, a big genetic study has been published in the journal Nature called The Population Genomics of the Viking World, and it explores the DNA of over 400 human remains from archaeological sites across Europe from the period uh, 2400 BC to 1600 AD, but mostly within what is commonly known as the Viking period, which is 800 to 1050 AD or thereabouts. The project was led by Professor Eska Willislev and Ashok Margayan. Uh, but today I'm talking to Dr. Kat Jarman, who wasn't part of the research project, but is an expert in this area. She's a bioarchaeologist and field archaeologist specialising in the Viking Age, Viking women, and currently working as a senior advisor for the new museum of the Viking Age in Oslo. She also has a new book coming out next year called River Kings, which we won't talk about too much because I hope to get Kat back on the podcast uh, later to talk about that. If that's okay. So Kat, thank you very much for joining us. How are you? Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks. Good stuff. Before we get into this, uh, what, what's what's the status of the new museum project? How's that going? So that's it's still in the early stages. So we have a little bit of a wait, unfortunately, but it's all very exciting. All the plans are getting in. I think uh, we're not quite doing the building work yet, but it's all the behind the scenes planning the exhibitions and it's going to be fantastic. So you've all got something really exciting to look forward to. Have we have we got uh, any sort of opening date? What's what's the what's the timescale? I think the plan at the moment is 2025. So okay. another five years to go. But Some, it will something be worth to look it. forward to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Definitely. <laughs> Okay, so so this uh, research project uh, looks really interesting. It got lots of uh, coverage when uh, when the uh, the publication was announced uh, last week um, in in mid September. Um, could you just describe for us in uh, layman's terms as best you can what scientific techniques uh, have been employed on on these bones? Yeah, so putting it very straightforwardly, really, it's it's a, a DNA analysis of the ancient human bones. So it's looking at the direct uh, genetics of those skeletons. And what they've done now, which is different from things done before, is this is uh, what we wrote as full genome sequencing. So that is looking in much more detail than things like just mitochondrial DNA or Y-DNA, which is where you'd look at just either the male or female ancestry lines. This is looking at each individual's unique genomes, so the whole thing. So basically what makes you uniquely you. And that's exciting because it can tell us something about the wider ancestry, but also very unique individual traits. So things as, as we've seen, and we'll get back to, I think, things like even hair colour and uh, they can look at disease and that sort of thing. And it just gives us a very, very detailed uh, image of those individuals that isn't just limited to sort of very, very wide uh, genetics. Okay, so so cutting edge stuff, super exciting, and giving us lots of findings. So, um, uh, as I said, you weren't involved in the project, but do you know how they went about choosing the remains that they did? They sampled lots of remains, lots of uh, lots of bones were, were looked at, uh, but presumably it's by no means all the uh, the possible assemblage they could have looked at. Do you know Do you know what their uh, their, their methodology was there? Yeah, so I've, I've been familiar with the project for a while. I've seen it happening uh, in the background, as it were. And um, I think what they were trying to do was actually quite difficult because it is difficult to find a good sample selection. So some of the, the criticisms that I have of this paper isn't really their fault. It's, it's just because the material isn't there. So they were looking at, obviously, graves, individuals that we could securely date to the Viking Age that were in the regions that were relevant to us. So not just Scandinavia, but also all those places that we know the, the Vikings went to. So, you know, Western Europe and, and also some uh, some parts of Eastern Europe. And 
it is difficult because you need to have material that's well preserved. So it's not, even though the skeletons are there, it's not necessarily the case that we can always get DNA out of them. So they need to well preserve, they need to have good context, they need to have some indication that these are associated with the, with the Vikings in some way. So that that in itself is, is a really important point that we need to bear in mind when we talk about the results. So were they looking for... Um, for deposits that people who are buried in some way that suggested they were uh, vi- culturally Viking. So they were specifically looking at people that we would typically define as as Vikings, um, for, for want of a better word, but also uh, having quite a wide selection, so a representative of people living at that time, but they were specifically targeting likely Viking graves. So that already was, was putting a selection on uh, the material. I suppose uh, one of the things we maybe should even have started with is is this term Viking. Obviously, it's it's uh, loaded with uh, yeah. a lot of meaning and 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 controversial in many ways. But um, for want of, of of a better phrase, it's it's to describe uh, the the culture, the people um, who who occupied this part of Scandinavia and then spread around the uh, Europe and the world uh, during this period. Is that is that a reasonable thing to say? Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the important things to note is that uh, this is quite a modern term. So although the word Viking was used uh, in in certain ways in the time, these people certainly wouldn't have thought of themselves as Viking. They wouldn't have gone and stand and saying, yes, I am a Viking, you are not. That wasn't really how it works. So it's very much something that we applied. Uh, I think it is is a a useful and it's a relevant term. Um, But we need to think about that quite carefully when we start talking about things like genetics, absolutely. Sure, um, uh, we'll probably get back to that as we as we talk through the uh, this this conversation. Um, so going back to the data set, um, uh, I, I guess every data set is skewed, as you said. Um, but one of the interesting things uh, looking at the the report was uh, they said that the availability of bone remains in the Baltic area, which is a, a really interesting area for for looking at um, uh, Viking studies now, uh, was low because of uh, a pre-Christian cremation practice. So basically, they burnt the bodies, and there were no bones available. Um, how much would those sorts of burial practices uh, there and elsewhere perhaps have, have skewed what uh, what remains they had um, to use? I think that's a really important observation, actually, because that it likely will have skewed the data set quite a lot. I would also have loved to see much more information from regions around the Baltic Sea, so in the, in parts of Eastern Europe. I think there are definitely a lot of graves there that are not cremation graves, so there is a potential for material, but we don't necessarily know uh, what would be the most relevant data set. But we also don't know because we the Vikings did do a lot of things to their dead. So some were uh, cremated and some were not. We don't know why these things actually happen side by side in some places. So you have cremation and then you have inhumation, which is which is when, um, when you just bury the body in the ground. And uh, we don't know why, we don't know who, maybe there were certain groups. So there might be certain groups are being cremated, which will then not be represented in a data set like this. And we don't know that, we don't know who those were. So we don't know what we're missing out on basically. So I think that's, something that we need to bear in mind that this there are some issues with it you know they've already selected uh, regions areas people they think are relevant and then there's that selection due to to burial practice so already we have a lot of uh, limitations to the data and lots of places where it could be skewed so that's those are good reasons for being a little bit wary of the the results Sure, and um, just looking through the list of places where they found where they they used remains, one of the areas where they didn't seem to have much sampling was uh, was from France, which is an area where 
Vikings were active and, and Normandy famously is, is said to have been founded by Vikings 9-11 and, and Rollo and all those those sorts of things. So um, it's interesting that it didn't, um, uh, didn't go there. Is that because there aren't remains or, 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 or did they just exclude that for some other reason, do you suppose? I expect that's for a couple of reasons. One of them is that there are very few certain Viking ribs. In fact, there are very few that we know about at all and they don't actually, as far as I know, have preserved uh, human remains. So you need to have both of the known association, you know, dates and so on, but you also need to have the preservation of the bones, which I, think, I don't think they would have been able to, to get. So we know that there's a lot of activity, as you say, but we just don't have the graves. We don't have those individuals. There's also issues with working with different countries and getting permission. It's actually quite hard to get permission in, in places for, for very good reasons. We have to think of the ethical considerations of doing this. So it may well be that they they very much wanted some of these regions, but weren't able to to access. There's other projects as well um, going on uh, by other people and other groups. So there may be quite natural reasons, but I think that is certainly one area would it be great to have seen more data as well. Okay, so but the but the remains they did study they were from Scandinavia, from Britain, uh, from Iceland, from Greenland, from the Baltic area, um, and I think uh, a, a little bit from Italy as well. But so so a, a good wide geographical spread. And what I found quite interesting when looking at that in the uh, in the report they've got a supplementary section where they basically detail where they found all the bones from, uh, and uh, and and say when they were found. And some of these were excavated a long time ago, back in the nineteenth century, which I, I thought was very nice. It's pretty cool that these remains. Are still there and available to be used for this sort of project. Yeah, it is. And, and there's, uh, there's a goldmine of, of material, both archaeologically and also in terms of uh, human remains sitting in, in, in museums all over Europe, all over the world, really. And it is wonderful that they have been kept for a long time that early on bones were not kept. So they would only keep the artefacts, the nice shiny gold, quite a lot of uh, artefacts, things like nails or, or whatever, were also thrown out and not considered important. But luckily, uh, a lot of human remains have been kept. Unfortunately, a lot of the time that was for for not not great purposes it was things like looking at racial superiority it was a very very popular thing for a long period of time but at least it's meant uh, that the, the bones are still there and available to us so we there are ethical considerations that we need to bear in mind when we use that material but um but it is it is really really good that we can now come back with these state-of-the-art methods even 10, 20 years ago, uh, and when I started doing the, the sort of work that I do, this wasn't possible. We had issues with things like contamination, because of course those that date back to the 19th century or before have been handled by hundreds of people over the year. That, with these new methods, uh, that's not an issue anymore. So we don't have to worry about the fact that they could have my DNA or whoever has been touching it. Sure. Um is it a problem that uh, the majority of the remains that they studied uh, uh, are male? I think that's right, isn't it? I think it was something like a 70-30 split or something like that. You correct me if I'm wrong. Um, do, do Viking period um, bone remains skew male? Uh, and if so, why would that be? Yeah, I think that is a big issue. So I, I looked through the numbers and I think you're right, it's about 30% of them were women, which actually is it's not too bad. Sometimes it's a lot worse than that. Um, there is a, there's a big skewing the data sets from a lot of places. A lot of places we have much, much fewer uh, female graves. And we don't actually know why that is. It's been uh, proposed that it's actually based on a, there being a lack of women in the Viking Age in Scandinavia, which actually I, I quite strongly disagree with. I think it's a, it's a bias in the archaeological record, not in the population. We know that men and women were often buried in different ways. And it's possible, perhaps, 
things like cremation was more common um, uh, among different genders. That's one one possibility. But it's also to do with some of the ways that these were collected. I know most of my experience is from the Norwegian material. And uh, going back to some of those very historic excavations, often they were only considered to be Viking if they had the right grave goods. And so if they had a sword or a recognisable Viking uh, artefacts, then they were marked and taken out of the ground as Viking graves. So if you don't, if there's a woman, for example, buried without any typical grave goods or without a sword or anything that, that would sort of mark her as, as, as what they would call Viking, then perhaps that grave was not actually excavated. It was not put in a museum. So we, we have this, this bias in the material already. Um, so again, it's not necessarily the fault of the researchers here. It's actually that the material just isn't there. We don't have quite enough Okay, uh, that would take us into a whole different conversation. Thinking about how far you can tell uh, what someone's uh, what someone's sex is by uh, the the artifacts they're buried with, but maybe yeah, oh, absolutely, that's another big, <laughs> big, big maybe, thing which we're not going maybe, to get. Maybe we won't do that one now, right now. Um, so, so right, so looking at that, so that's uh, a sort of an overview of what they've done. Really interesting, and, and and some of the problems that they may have encountered in doing it. So, thinking about the results, am I am I right that basically it gives the lie to any idea that the Vikings or or, or the people who lived in what might be called the Viking homeland areas were some sort of racially pure Scandinavian group to start with at the, at the start of the period in the late 8th, 9th century, that sort of period. Yeah, it's definitely showing what we uh, as archaeologists have known quite a long, long time, that, that really that this is a time when people are moving in and out. We don't have this this idea of a pure uh, Viking nation or anything like that, which I know Hitler was very fond of uh, back in the day. It's really, it's not reflected in reality uh, at all. I mean, there are some, and they are showing that here as well, that there are some areas where there's not a lot of gen- genetic movement in and out, which is usually constrained by geography. And anybody who's been to, to Norway on the Western North, Norway, for example, will understand why that is. It's quite difficult to move about. But even within those confines, we do see an awful lot of of movement. So there's a lot of contact. We know that from the archaeological record as well, that there's so much trade going on even before the Viking Age. So people would be moving. Uh, It would be quite, uh, I don't want to use the word cosmopolitan, because I don't know if that's quite right until later on in the Viking Age. But certainly, um, that sort of stereotype is is one that is, is, is... pretty much made up uh, i would say and one of the one of the things that you've identified in your um sort of your critique your analysis of of, of this uh, uh report that you um that you tweeted about um uh, is that the the viking people were intermarrying with the with the sami uh people in some way so that's that's a pretty interesting um finding i think isn't it yeah, that's an extremely interesting conclusion, actually, because that's again, it's something that we have suspected, and we know there's a lot of contact between the the Sami, so the indigenous population uh, of, of Scandinavia, and, um, and and the sort of what we would call culturally Viking people, um, but we haven't really seen much real physical evidence of that. So to have that here in the genetics is really, really exciting because it's actually showing that we don't, those boundaries are perhaps a lot more blurred than what we'd like to think. That just uh, just because you have those different cultural entities doesn't mean that they don't mix, that they don't have intermarriage, that they don't have all that social interaction. So I think if that, if we know that's happening within those groups in Scandinavia, there's no reason to think that that also doesn't happen with other groups, uh, Scandinavians and, and people, people elsewhere. So I think to me, that's really one of the the more exciting conclusions from the paper. 
Hmm. Is that so? Is that something that's that's pretty new in terms of the the documentary sources and other sources? Do they suggest much contact between Viking cultural people and, and Sami people, or is it not really discussed at all? Uh, a little bit, definitely. And there are saga. Um, some of the sagas absolutely talk about that. Talk about information. Talk about how how these groups are involved politically as well. Uh, in terms mm. of, there's a lot of trade we know going on. So there are certain resources that, especially the Sami, are really really good at getting hold of things like furs and and various animals. Um, so so we we do know that I think from a lot of other sources that there's there's all that contact. So but to see that actually uh, resulting in, in also um, uh, relationships and then and then new uh, uh, new families uh, starting that's quite an interesting one mm, okay um, another one of the of the main findings or at least one of them that's been uh, flagged up in the uh, in the in main results and reported in papers is it shows evidence for a major influx of Danish ancestry into England, a Swedish influx into the Baltic, and Norwegian influx into Ireland, Iceland, and Greenland. So the flow of these Viking peoples into the uh, the places that they went to. Now that's interesting, but it kind of is uh, is just a reflection of what we already knew, isn't it, from other other angles of research. It is, because that is really the, the sort of general conclusion and the general way that we've been thinking about it for quite a long time. But I personally have some reservations on that, and I'm not entirely sure that we should take that conclusion that's come out of that paper um, at face value like that. I think we need to look at it because actually, if you if you dig into what they've written uh, quite carefully, they're showing there's, there's there's a lot going on there. Even though they've got some overall trends, there's, there's a lot more evidence of people going in different directions. So they're actually saying that they're finding Swedish and even Finnish, I think they put down, um, ancestry in, in Western Europe, which is sort of what is meant to not really happen. Uh, yeah. And also evidence of, of Danish or Norwegian going to the east, so from one of the sites in Russia, uh, which, which sort of goes counter to that argument. So I think, uh, yes and no, I, I, I think it does confirm a lot of, of the general trends. And I think those a lot of those general trends are backed up by artefacts and by literary sources and now also genetics. But there's more going on and we need to be a little bit careful before we, we sort of say that this is now being confirmed by, by genetics. Okay. Um, then one of the uh, other quite interesting things about this, the, the, the material for, the, for England is um, uh, the question of how easy it is to separate uh, Viking period DNA coming into, into the English population from uh, Anglo-Saxon period, so earlier um, uh, Germanic movements of people. Is that, um, is that right? Is, is, it, is it basically impossible to separate the two? So does that skew things again? Yes, absolutely. And that is a really big problem. And in fact, I think my, my sort of biggest problem with this um, this paper is what it's saying about England, because we can't still, um, unfortunately, I'm hoping that this is going to be possible at some point in the future, but we can't separate at the moment between, as you say, those migrations that happen uh, when the Viking Age has started from 750 onwards, and those that happened just one, two, three hundred years earlier, because there's no difference in the genetic material. So if you were living in what is now Denmark, southern Denmark, and you moved across in, say, 600 AD, your genetics would be, or your genes, your genomes would be pretty identical to if you made that move a few hundred years later and yeah. we just can't tell that apart and um and that means that making those conclusions is, is tricky it's 
helped a lot by having ancient DNA as opposed to modern DNA. So a lot of previous studies have tried to do this based on modern DNA, so measuring um, uh, or taking examples of of people living in, in Britain or in England today and then sort of working back, as it were. But getting the, the real data sample is, is, is really, really important. So that is helping. We still don't have enough samples and enough material from the earlier periods. Um, so we don't, from, from that, what we, we might call the um, Anglo-Saxon period or sort of pre-Viking age. And, and that is a really, really big problem because it means we can't tell them apart. And I also am a bit concerned about the fact that the samples that they have from England in this study all date to uh, around the turn of the millennium. So they're about 1000 AD or um, sort of early 11th century. And so the conclusions really come out of that uh, very particular time period, which is actually quite different from the early Viking Age. So to use that and, and, and sort of try to describe the entire Viking Age based on one point in time, which is actually quite specific, uh, then uh, I think that, again, could cause some misleading uh, results. Uh, and the English evidence that they looked at was was also not only uh, quite defined in time period, but also quite specific context, wasn't it? Of of um, well, well, you can explain, but it's, it's sort of massacres, really, wasn't it? Yeah. So there's two mass graves, two massacres that are very very specific, and um, they're clearly they're, these are also males. So there's no women. There's no data from women in this whole um, study at all um, in England, and we we now actually think we know that there were a lot of women coming across from Scandinavia uh, to England as well. So that's one thing. But because these were what have previously been concluded to be raiding parties, possibly that came over very, very recently uh, to England means that they don't really represent the settled populations at all. And there's also nothing from the north, nothing from the northwest, where we know there's a really, really strong Scandinavian, usually thought to be uh, Norwegian uh, input. So Again, taking those southern uh, 11th century samples to reflect all of the settlement of England is, is unfortunately, I think, uh, not quite accurate enough. And presumably there are remains that, would, that, that could be looked at there, so the, so the project could be extended or a, a further study could, could um, elucidate that picture. Uh, so there's some there's there's a limit to the amount of material that we know. So again, this leads yeah. us back to the beginning where we were thinking, you know, what? How do you select these samples? How do you find the Vikings? Uh, because unfortunately, they don't come with that label because that label didn't really exist. So we don't have a lot of evidence. What really you need uh, is just a really broad uh, sampling of material from that time period from across uh, all of England and and then you can start making uh, some of those conclusions and look at who's buried with these artifacts and how are they buried but so that is a big problem uh, there is some more in, in in the pipeline I'm actually working on uh, material from Repton so that's dating to the 9th century and we hope we'll get somewhere with that quite soon so that should hopefully add a little bit more to that picture as well eventually. Okay, and Repton, that's the, the, the great heathen RV uh, period, isn't it? And, and there were women involved in that, or there were women as part of that, uh, of that group, weren't there? So hopefully there's something there, right? Yes, that's right. So that we do have some women that we are working on as well. So hopefully we'll can add to it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. If you talk to somebody in the year, I don't know, 950 uh, AD and you started talking to him about being Viking, I think he would be very surprised and very puzzled.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Still sticking with the, the British evidence, but but moving more north, they did look at um, some material from uh, from Orkney um, that suggests, and again, we're using these quite um, charged terms, Pictish DNA. I'm not sure if that's an appropriate thing to say or not, but um, uh, Pictish people being buried in a Viking context, which um, you, you could sort of spin that and say, and there were people who were not born Viking, but uh, were buried Viking and therefore culturally Viking. Um, so that's that's quite an interesting thing to 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 um to think about, isn't it? So can you can you shed some light on that for us? Yeah, I think that's also again a really, really important one. But as you were just uh, saying just then, it really hammers down this idea that there isn't really such a thing. I think Howard Williams said this on, on Twitter, you cannot be genetically Viking. Uh, this is very much a cultural definition, it's an interpretation that we're putting on it. But I think this is also showing that uh, the way that perhaps we have identified some of these individuals before is very much based on the grave goods. It's based on that other evidence. And we are assuming that they are Scandinavian or, or Viking or whatever, based on how they are buried. But when you are then getting results like this, that some of them have what is then uh, Pictish or local or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, DNA, uh, means that they have some other backgrounds, they have got other cultural elements in there that we don't know about. And so it's the same as uh, the Sami evidence, I think, uh, that, that we got from from another part of the study. It's really showing that those identities are really quite complex. And it's exciting for us too, because it means we can dig into it a bit further. Uh, there were some things pointed out 
about that, actually. I think it was uh, Adrian Maldonado, who works at the National Museum of Scotland, who pointed out some of those graves. One of them that was identified as Pictish is actually a very unusual one and it's an intrusive. It's a, it's a, it's a grave that's added sort of on top of some other graves and it's not a normal one. It's a woman buried in a very unusual way. So again, that needs to we need to sort of reassess that and think, well, what does that mean if, if she wasn't the one who uh, who was buried in the real grave but actually added uh, in a, a very peculiar way? Does that tell us something about the interaction between these different groupings, perhaps social grouping, cultural groupings? I think it is extremely exciting, but we need to be a little bit careful with just making those statements saying, here we have a, a Pict and a Viking and they're buried together. Um, what's more interesting is that they also had a couple of people who had mixed ancestry. So they had sort of half and half, uh, sort of local and uh, and foreign, as it were, or Scandinavian and, and Pictish. That I think is really good because then you see that these over generations, these populations are mixing together. And that's when you can start to work out things like what's happen, happening culturally when when you know that they are, um, they are clearly mixing. Okay. Um, so... All right, so, so it's it's a complicated picture, and there's lots of things that uh, that that might need a bit more nuance. But basically, uh, there is a sense that it, it's kind of it is uh, confirming the the flows of people that we suspected might have been. But as you said, there are possible complications there. But what does it tell us about flows of people back into into Scandinavia during this period? Is is it does it inform us much about that? Yeah, that was uh, another of the things that I was really happy to see. I was really excited to see that they were finding much, quite a lot of gene flow into Scandinavia, actually, um, both from uh, places we were expecting, really. So North Atlantic regions coming back into Scandinavia, but also places like Southern Europe. So they had a few instances of people from um, Southern Europe coming into Scandinavia, which is hugely exciting. We see, obviously, a lot of objects, things being traded, things are moving around. But the question in archaeology is always, are we looking at uh, the objects or the people? Are they just being traded or are people actually moving with them? So to see that and see people going back uh, links into what we were discussing at, at the moment, whether there's a sort of really pure, uh, pure group of people that didn't have much input. Actually, we're seeing people coming from Southern Europe as well. Uh, that's extremely exciting and it shows us more about the dynamics. It shows what's happening um, back home and how actually all those movements out, it's usually just focused on everything going out, but actually that had a huge impact on society back in Scandinavia. New people, new idea, eventually things like Christianity. And, uh, you know, that is really, really exciting to see for us. Okay, and then moving on from that to, uh, to, to the question about what it tells us about Viking raiding parties. We talked about that a little bit um, earlier in the in the English context. Um, does it does it tell us? Does it help us to understand what a Viking raiding raiding party might have been made up of? Because we kind of have a view that it would be you know one bunch of Danes who all look like Danes and and, and are Danish. Um, but this this perhaps suggests that we need to to rethink that a bit. Yeah, so what's really actually quite interesting is that they have a, a few of them here, potentially, if we accept those uh, English samples as both being raiding parties. Mm. And we have two there, which show a, a bit of a mix. So they're showing some some other uh, ancestry there as well. But then you have the um, the Salma ship um, as well, the burial uh, of the Salma ship. And that's a really, really interesting one because they actually found four brothers buried together. So they have family connections. They've got... Uh, individuals who are related going out on this uh, particular mission. 
in that case, they actually have quite coherent uh, ancestry, actually. So, so in that particular group, it seems to be like a lot of them are coming from the same area, whereas the ones in England have a lot more of a mix. And you also have a, a time difference of several hundred years. So that, again, can be really exciting to look at what happens over time, early Viking Age with the latest uh, Viking Age and seeing what differences. And then we can start to dig into those individual stories. Who are these people? We can look at the isotope evidence that we've got. What sort of food were they eating? There's evidence of people who are related. So one of the, this was one of the most special things for me, I think, the uh, graves from St. John's College in Oxford actually have a, has a close relative uh, in a grave in Denmark. So I think it's a cousin or something like that. I can't remember what the relationship is now. But but you then, you can link and then you can find out all about, about, about him and seeing how were their lives differently. And you suddenly you get this perspective that it's just impossible to get otherwise. I mean, that is amazing, isn't it? And, and what are the chances of that, of having two people who are related uh, being found? I mean, that's that's that feels like a massive coincidence, or is that should I not be that surprised about that? Yeah, I've been wondering about this too. Is it actually a coincidence or not? I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of people lived during the Viking Age, so the, the chances of them, them being so lucky. I think they actually found uh, several other pairs as well of siblings, that some that were separated by long distance. But it, it makes you also wonder, is it if it's not a coincidence, maybe it's got something to do with who is going out and who's being buried in these very visible graves. So in Denmark, for example, you know, who's getting those graves? Um, are they actually quite high-status people? And is it also those people who have the opportunity to go abroad? Is there actually a selection? Are those people who are invisible in the archaeological records, slaves, for example, um, maybe there's maybe there isn't so much of a coincidence after all. Maybe there's a, a selection there and a bias that we don't know about. But it's um, it just makes it very human, doesn't it? Which is very exciting. And that, I mean, that is exactly what I was thinking, actually, is what is the, there, are, there are probably certain sorts of people who get buried in certain sorts of ways and who are uh, more obviously found by archaeologists and archaeological techniques. Um, and slaves is, is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, were, were, were slaves buried at all i mean i don't do we do we have any sense about the the, the really, funerary practices for slaves we really really don't know actually and we don't know how many people were enslaved during the viking age it looks like they're possibly quite you know, really high numbers we know there were slaves in society and um we we just don't know uh chances are they weren't given certainly not wealthy burials uh if buried at all perhaps they were cremated uh, perhaps they were just um not given any special treatment whatsoever so so we don't know that and obviously we don't have then every evidence of who those people were in life so if we find their graves we don't know there's some suggestions uh there's some graves from norway actually where there are multiple people buried together and it's clear that there's one central burial and then there's there's up to i think there's one with two or three people around them some that may have had bound hands and uh as previous studies show things like differences in diets and differences mm. in treatments of the bodies that's probably the closest we can get but they are very unusual so i think we could be talking about thousands of people here that have just gone gone missing really from the records so mm. we just don't know yeah i just wanted to pick up go back up on uh, on salme just for a second because that is a a really interesting site isn't it and one that's coming more into sort of popular awareness neil price writes about it in in his new book a bit and i think more people are aware of this um we should we should maybe just just talk about this so this is a an early uh, uh, Viking era um, um, uh, site in uh, in what's now Estonia, and it was it's from the mid eighth century, isn't it? So before 
um, before our traditional Lindisfarne seven nine three business kicks off. So, what, do, can you just give us a little bit more about uh, about that and those and those brothers? I mean, it's amazing to think of four brothers on on one ship, isn't it? Yeah, so the summer ship burials are extremely exciting. It's actually two different ships that were found together during some roadworks, I think. And uh, almost 40 individuals in total, all men or young men, buried side by side, actually in layers in one of the boats with some extremely rich grave goods. They had some very finely decorated uh, swords and various other weapons. They had injuries, so we know that there was a battle. And they also had things like birds of prey. There was lots of animals. There were dogs and uh, gaming pieces. They all, uh, or a lot of them, had whole complete sets of gaming pieces with them. So it seems like it's a, it's a really high-status burial. It was also right at the start of the Viking Age. And it's going eastward, so it's going probably from Scandinavia somewhere and, and over to the east. So that is really important in itself because it's before, as you say, before Lindisfarne. And uh, it's really perhaps telling us something um, about the very beginning of that period. Okay, so that's one to keep an eye on and and, uh, further research on that uh, site is going to bring up some interesting things, I would imagine. Right. Um, so just coming to the end. So one of the um, one of the things that, that has been reported a lot in terms of this uh, of this project is uh, the question of hair colour, which seems um, seems a, you know, a, a slightly old thing to, to get fixated on. But um, uh, does, what does it tell us about hair colour in the Viking period? Yeah, so so I think that the conclusion wasn't it, that it was some um, dark hair was quite common, and they weren't all just blonde uh, individuals living in Scandinavia. I have to say, I was also a bit puzzled that that was brought out as one of the main conclusions. But I guess it it just serves to to help combat this myth that uh, that we just have these very uh, similar looking blonde blue eyed individuals and that actually you have more diversity perhaps than we think well i suppose it ties it it ties in in terms of our modern view of vikings as yeah. as you know the blonde haired scandinavian uh, exemplar doesn't it so so challenging that is is interesting and that does lead into my my, my last point, which um, uh, just to think more generally, what this this whole project and and I suppose more widely, what it tells us about the idea of Viking identity and and you know using that word advisedly as we have done throughout this conversation, um, because quite a few commentators talking about this have have referenced the fact that uh, Viking was uh, was a job description. Not not a condition of birth, and that does seem to be something which is coming out of of this study. And I think you know that is something that people have been talking about for a while, right? Yeah, I think that it's really it's really good that that has come across, and that a lot of people have commented on that because I think many people have this idea that they can just go and get their own DNA test, and it will tell them how many percent Viking they are, and uh, that is a very problematic thing, and especially when there is this still in uh, among a lot of groups this idea that we are talking about a very superior uh, group or even race of people which is very much a modern myth that has been created so I think anything that can give a bit more perspective on that and give us an understanding that we are talking about actually quite a diverse uh, population we're talking about people who have input from a lot of other places from a lot of other religions and this idea of what it is to be Viking is something that that we've been very much part of creating and we're sort of creating 
creating that image of what a Viking is. If you talk to somebody in the year, I don't know, 950 uh, AD, and you started talking to him about being Viking, I think he would be very surprised and very puzzled. And in fact, those identities that we have and that they would have had are based much more on things like who their family were, what geographical region they're from, who they're working for, who they're fighting for, who they're marrying. And I think these things are saying, showing that you have people um, uh, mixing with local populations, with indigenous groups, that's showing us that the dynamics of Viking Age society are actually quite different from what a lot of people think today. Okay, to conclude, one last thing. Um, uh, well, two, two questions, actually. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that um, that you think uh, we should have talked about? And secondly, is there anything in the uh, research that you think uh, would be a good place to, to, to have further study on? Yeah, so I think the, the only thing we haven't really talked about is some of these sites in the east, they have actually got a lot of samples from Russia and some from Ukraine as well, which, uh, again, they haven't really concluded much on. They are actually really, really important because the question of who settled, who became the Rus and the, the sort of what many people refer to as the Eastern Vikings uh, is also a, another quite con contentious question, really. So this is, uh, to my knowledge, the first time we've got any uh, genetic information from samples uh, from Russia, from Viking Age uh, period. So the fact that they are finding some ancestry, I think they've found some Danish ancestry in one of them. There's some information about family relationships there as well, which nobody's really dug into properly yet. That's hugely important because there's a lot uh, with the interaction between uh, the, the local populations in the east and the Scandinavians coming in. That's been very disputed and very uh, still is actually a, a very contentious. So I think that is one one area where there's much more to dig out both from this and potentially to work on in the future that's that could be uh, actually quite important brilliant well thank you kat uh, dr kat jarman thank you so much for your time uh, uh, obviously really interesting to have that context to to this study and to uh, to get a sense of about what it tells us uh, and just finally um so your book river kings very quickly when where are we with that when's that going to be uh, coming out Hopefully, at the moment, it was a bit delayed by coronavirus, but hopefully it should be out in February next year. So that's all uh, in progress. Okay, and uh, presumably you haven't had a chance to rewrite it in the light of, uh, of, of this, this study. Oh, I have actually. So I have bits, <laughs> some new conclusions. There's some really interesting things there that I haven't discussed yet that will be in my book. So yeah, keep an eye out for that. Brilliant. Well, uh, we, we will hopefully have you back. We've talked about you coming back on the podcast to talk about that. So, uh, so hopefully uh, we will be able to persuade you to do that uh, sometime Absolutely. next year. I would love to. Thank you. Thank you, Kat. Great. Thank you. That was Dr. Kat Jarman. If you want to know more about this period, check out our website, historyextra.com, for a wealth of Viking features and podcasts. And if you want to be kept informed about new articles from the early medieval and medieval period on our site, then sign up to our medieval newsletter. Just search for medieval newsletter on historyextra.com and you'll find the link. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow when Frederick Logaval will be speaking about JFK. JFK.